Well, this is the part of the service where you all get to practice this really important life skill. The, when, the guys on Wednesday night have really, really gotten good at this, so the rest of you can practice with them. This is where I talk about something that I think is really interesting, and the rest of you go like this. Yes, that is super, super good. That's just, mm. All right, so we're going to work on this skill right here. I've been working my dissertation, and I found something I thought is really, really interesting. Rob is super into this already. This is fantastic. So I'm doing my research on my dissertation, and uh, to try to give you the short story, I am trying to figure out if when the Protestant Reformation happened and the Protestants quit being Catholic, when they left, they kept doing things um, regarding pastors in the same way the Catholic Church did things with the priests. So the, they, the, the priests, the, you have a Catholic priest and you have a Protestant pastor, right? And did the Protestants just keep doing things the way that the Catholic Church did with the priests? And if so, what are they? And my test case to determine whether they did that is, did they continue to view the pastoral qualification of a husband of one wife in the light of the priest, like the Catholic Church? Yes, super interesting, I know. But anyway, this is what I thought you might be interested in. Have you ever wondered, wondered why it became a tradition that pastors often had parsonages. We don't, we don't do it much anymore, but for, for, for the, you know, there used to be generations where pastors never lived in their own home. They never had anything. They always had parsonages. We've really moved away from that quite a bit. One reason being is when pastors retired, they, never, you know, they didn't have a retirement. They had no, built no equity in their home, so we've kind of quit doing it. But pastors, for a long time, never, ever owned a home. And I think I know why. You ready for this? In the Old Testament, the Levitical priests did not own land. The 11 other tribes owned land, and the 12th tribe did not own land. It was their job to completely focus on serving the Lord in the temple and doing his work so they could not own land. So then when the Catholic Church went on, it started with Tertullian around 200-ish or so, they started really connecting the Old Testament Levitical priesthood with what they started calling the priesthood of the church, the Christian priesthood. So they call the Catholic Church today, they call their pastors priests, right? And so the people argued, so if you read Cyprian, for example, he would say pastors, or they would call them priests, Christian priests, should not own land because they should be fully focused on doing the work of God. Therefore, Catholic priests would never own land. And then I would argue that when the Protestants left the Catholicism, you imagine when you leave something that you've been doing it along, you know, the same way a long time, it's hard to just completely reinvent the wheel, right? You always kind of take some things with you that we took the idea that pastors probably shouldn't own land. They shouldn't be worried about that. So we had parsonages. Is that not super interesting? You guys are faking it really good, and I, I, I really appreciate I've almost got a standing ovation. That's really maybe over the top on that one. So as we go into our passage today and we think about 
the church, we're going to think about something here today, and that's this. You know, as I as I, you do visitation and you know you do funerals as a pastor, you know, I really I'm kind of at the age of my life. I don't have a lot of funerals of people I know. So my parents' generation is about in their 60s. None of them have really passed, and so maybe my grandparents' generation has. And I've had you know there's been a couple there, but some of them are old enough. I I don't really remember them. You know, that, you know, I do remember my grandparents, but their brothers and sisters and, and whatnot, I don't remember them. So I really haven't had to deal with a lot of death in uh, my life. Not too many people. Maybe my grandfather might be the only one who was kind of somewhat close to me that, that had passed. But as a, as a pastor, you deal with it a lot more, right? Funerals or whatnot. And it's this interesting thing on how we deal with death in the United States and how we do death as individuals. Do we see death as this really terrible thing, well, I can agree with you all, I am not on my way to get there, amen? I'm not, I'm not running, right? And when you're in the military, at least this is what I've heard, when you're in the foxhole and you're about ready to see whether you're going to die or not, usually everyone thinks, I think it'd be a really good idea not to die, right? So we're not in a hurry to get there. But I would say that as believers, when we get to the point where we know maybe the time is near. So when I go visit some people, and I, I won't point them out, some, some will say, I've had a great life, I've served the Lord, and I'm ready to go anytime. I'm ready to go anytime. If you are not a believer, and you think there is nothing left, I think I would get to the end of my life and say, not today, not tomorrow, or any other day after that, right? So we're going to talk about how, why as Christians we should have a hope when death comes that others may not. So we start in verse 12, continue on in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? So they apparently had some people in the church that were claiming there's no resurrection from the dead, and this probably came from some kind of a false teaching. We won't go into that too much, but there's these people rejecting the idea of being raised from the dead. We go to verse 13. But there, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. I remember sitting in seminary, and I can't remember if I was in class or in chapel, but I was in the room that we had chapel. And I remember contemplating this idea. Could Christ have died for our sins and never raised from the dead and we all still go to heaven. So would he be atoned for our sins by dying for us? So he's, you know, his vicarious atonement, if you, if you like that word. He dies in our place. Would he need to raise again? And at the time, I remember thinking, I'm not really sure he would need to. Follow my logic. I did something bad. I need to be punished. 
Christ takes that punishment for me, so now I don't get punished anymore. So therefore, no resurrection was needed. That's kind of the, was my thinking then. Is my th- was my thinking correct? What, could he have just died? Let's go on to verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. So he's really going after him here. He's saying, if you're saying no one can rise from the dead, then you're saying that Christ didn't rise from the dead. So therefore, everything we're saying about Christ is all just baloney, right? We're all running around claiming he rose again. So if resurrection is impossible, I'm just, you know, blowing smoke here, wasting my breath. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. So when I thought to myself, well, maybe he wouldn't have needed to rise from the dead. Maybe he just could have died and that would have been good enough, would seem to not fit particularly well with 1 Corinthians chapter, first, chapter 15, verse 17, now would it? And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and, are, and you are still in your sins. You know, life is complicated, right? Life's complicated, And so oftentimes we want to come up with problems and solutions, and we think just one thing will fix it. Like, how do we fix the opioid crisis? You know what we like to do? We like to come up with the solution to that problem in one good solid sentence and do it. Let me come up with one sentence that will solve it. Let's toughen laws. Oh, that's so simple, right? It's so simple. We're just going to toughen the laws, and all things are going to be better. Right? And if any of you have like lived in your life, you know that life is never that simple. I read, listened to a podcast with an economist. It was, it's hilarious. So he's talking about the economy. And the great thing about the economy is it's so big and so complicated that nobody knows what they're talking about. And this guy said this. He goes, I'm an economist. I thought I really understood how people are motivated. You change the tax laws. You change this. You change the motivational factors. And we can control behavior. And he said, and then I was potty training my daughter. And I was like, I am an economist. I know how to motivate people. So I told my daughter every time she used the potty, I would give her a reward of some candy or something like this. And he said, it took two days for my daughter to be able to use the restroom on command. She was eating so much candy, it was ridiculous. She would just go a little bit and then wait for a little while. Oh, daddy, I need to go again. Tinkle, tinkle. Candy. He goes, I couldn't even predict the ramifications of the new rule I put in place for my two-year-old. I probably am not going to be able to predict all the ramifications of some kind of new tax law or something like that in the economy, right? Life's complicated. And what I, my point here is this. When we think about what it took to save us, I think not only did he need to take the punishment for our sin, but defeating death was a part 
of what was done for our salvation. He defeated the fact that when we die, we deserve to what? Go to hell. And he defeated that as an aspect of what he did for us on our salvation. There's so many parts of salvation, right? Where we've been justified. One day we'll be glorified. He's a propitiation, right? So like sides of a coin or something like that, these many aspects. And I think, therefore, when I thought to myself, the resurrection, what was needed, it wasn't needed, that was an oversimplification of what Christ did for us when he died for us. He did more than just, you know, take our punishment. Though he did do that, he also defeated death. That's why the song we just sang was so, so perfect, right? Oh, death, where is your, you know, Sting, where is your victory? He defeated death. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, all, we are of all people most to be pitied. So he says, if we have hope without thinking about the resurrection, without a life after, if this is all there is, then people should be pitying us. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You know, it was through a person that sin came into the world, and it's through a person that salvation comes. That's why when we use language like we need to have a personal relationship with Christ, why can we say something like salvation is a personal relationship? Because if we said something like this, well, the way to get to heaven is by doing these certain things. You know, there's a checklist, or, you know, you do this and don't do this and jump this high and, you know, duck, duck this far and so on and so forth. There's not a lot of relationship in that, right? But with Christ, when there's an individual, when there's a person that is responsible for our salvation, there is an aspect of we are his friend in some way. There is a relationship there that is greater than, well, if you do these things. So, you might say, well, people have argued in the past that maybe there's certain sacraments, ways of getting God's grace, right? The seven sacraments of the Catholic Church, other uh, denominations are sacramental. You do these certain aspects, and God provides you with grace. So, I one time went to a Catholic priest and said, I'm a bit confused. Do I get to heaven by the Eucharist and communion? Do I get to heaven by getting baptized? You know, that's one of the sacraments. Maybe I listed a few more. I probably had a better memory then and remembered all seven. I said, which of those do I really need to do to get to heaven? And he says this. He says, well, you really need to do kind of all those things, but also it's really important you need to do good works. You need to do good works, too. I was like, about, fell off my chair. I couldn't believe that, that he was he's saying that to me. 
And you know what then he said? He said, you Protestants probably care more about the Bible than we do. And knowing more about the Bible, we care more about tradition than more about the Bible. And when I think of a life of saying, well, I just need to do these seven sacraments and I just need to do good works, this to me does not sound like a faith based on a relationship with the person. Because if you're going to depend on me to be good enough, to be good all the time, you're not going to make it. I'm not going to make it, right? I'm not going to make it. You know, maybe some of you have read there's a big controversy within the Catholic Church uh, because of uh, the abuse they've had. And I hate to pick on them. It's, uh, I, don't, I don't necessarily intend to do that. But let me give you an illustration of the fallenness of man. If in your theology you believe that the priest or the pastor or whoever, whatever you call them, is somehow greater or holier than everyone else, so when you're, when you're becoming a Catholic priest, you are a Catholic priest for life. You can give the sacraments forever, and it can never be taken away from you. you uh, the language wrapped around the priesthood is very strong as far as their prominence. Then if you're in this position, so let's pretend I'm the priest, I'm the pastor, so, you know, I'm the priest. It's viewed that I'm super holy, which is why I got to be, become the priest, that uh, I, I do all these special things that make me really holy, and I get to say the special words over the special bread that turns into Christ, and so on and so forth, and so I'm viewed in this very high way. Guess what happens when I do something wrong? You're going to be really motivated as an organization. Maybe not you personally, you guys, but the people like above us, if you have a hierarchical system, are going to be very motivated to try to what? Cover it up so I don't look bad. Why? Because I am supposed to be special, holy, awesome. And if suddenly I'm not special, holy, awesome... Ooh, that sort of messes with how we view things, right? So you're going to be very, very motivated to have no one find out about it, to cover it up. Now, I'm sure there's Protestants that have done bad things and covered it up. It's not like, I'm sure we can all come up with lots of examples, right? So it's not like one organization always does right and one always does wrong. But you can see how when we move away from this relationship idea, and we see some sort of hierarchical, well, you can be good, your works are going to get you there, then when those works don't work out the way they're supposed to, what do you got to do? You got to cover it up. Guess what happens if I do something wrong? You know what everyone should say? Yep, just like the rest of us, just like the rest of us. I mean, if I do something bad enough, it causes me to not be in the ministry, I don't know. But, but in general, there's nothing more special about or holier than thou, than the preacher, than anyone else. In some ways, I think as people in the pew, we sometimes think it's their job to be holy. 
and it's not my job to be as holy. They're the holy ones. No, no, no. We believe in the priesthood of the, all, of the believer. We all have access to Christ. And there's no one person more responsible to be holier than anyone else. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. There might be debate on how this end time stuff goes, what is going on in the end. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.24 usually doesn't come up in the end times debate very much because you could kind of read it different ways. Most everyone agrees that at the end, the Father destroys every rule and authority and power. So what happens leading up to that is um, not really going to be addressed here. But we know that God wins in the end, if you will. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, death, right? When Christ died on the cross, he defeated death defeated death. And one day, when we get rid of all these sinful bodies, guess what? Death will be defeated in the most permanent way possible. There will be no more death. It will be the ultimate defeat. For God has put all things subject under his feet, but when it says all things are in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So Christ, the, uh, God, Son, uh, God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit within the Trinity, so they're equal, they're one, and they also have this sort of relationship where one listens to the other at various times, okay? So... This is the, me solving the Trinity explanation and finding a really good way to describe this is going to be tough. Um, I'll do it the best, the best I can and try to describe how this would work. So maybe you're like, you have a coworker, you both have the same title, you both have equal authority, but maybe one of you is better at this than the other. And so then you go into the sense one of you kind of always makes the decision in this area. Even though one, you know, you're not really in charge of the other, one has authority over the other in this situation. And this is how I would describe the relationship to Christ and God in this situation. It's not that they're not equal. They're equal. It's just in di at different times, um, God has the authority over Christ, maybe in a way that you might have authority over a coworker in which you are actually equal. There's Fancy words to talk about all that, and I gave you the simple version. Otherwise, what do people mean by baptizing on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Oh, man. The amount of options of what this verse might mean is very long. Okay, it's very long. What does it mean to be baptized for the dead? So there are people that think that this means that you actually get baptized on behalf of someone else. So I might say, well, my grandfather died, and I'm going to go get baptized on behalf of him. And if you believe in a more sacramental system, that baptism gives you some kind of grace, you might actually think, okay, I'm going to get baptized, and this grace that I would normally get 
I'm doing on behalf of someone else. There are a lot of other ways to look at this, and I considered making a very long slide listing all the possible ways that this could be seen, and I decided I gave you the smile and nod treatment at the beginning, so I should probably not also give it to you at the end. But I would not take this in that way. I would probably talk, um, take it in a way that would be more of a, I don't even know, I'm not sure it's talking about water baptism. I would probably take it a different way. But we go on to verse 30. Why are we in anger, danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die every day. Notice here the pride in which he has in the people. Oh, wouldn't it be great to be able to have the Apostle Paul come and say to you, well, I'm really proud of what you're doing. I'm really proud of what you're doing, and I, I hope that as you strive in your life, so often we want to please people in our life, you know, we want to please our parents. It's amazing how, you know, how, how old we get. We always have this little pull in our life, you know, you don't want to disappoint your parents. Like, it just doesn't, maybe your parents, I mean, maybe mine, mine aren't, but I can imagine if my parents were half senile, I'd still want to make them happy, right? You just have this pull in your life to please your parents. And, and that's all well and fine, but the pull to please Christ, to have someone say on the level of the Apostle Paul, which I suppose he can't come back and do, but someone at that point to say, I'm proud of you. Verse 32, what do I gain if humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He says, if we just have this one life, what, what, why live for God? Why bother? Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your junk, drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So he starts out saying something really nice about them, right? Hey, you're really great, but, right, but, he says, some of you are the same. You know, I'll, I'll end with this, and this is kind of an odd thing to end on, but this is what struck me. I often get really, really worried about people that doctrinally think quite a bit different than me. I don't get as worried as I used to, but I still maybe sometimes get worried. And this denial of false doctrine that they're involved with, the resurrection of Christ, this would be like in the really, really bad category, right? Really, really bad. Really, really bad. And still though Paul strongly rebukes them, really hammers them, like you really should not think this, does he ever, does he say, but, and you are not even a Christian? So if for some reason I would have continued to think throughout my, I, I believe, a continued degree with that one version of myself that thought for a moment that the resurrection of the dead didn't matter, if I continue to believe that, would I have still been a Christian? I, I think I would have. I would have been wrong. I'd had faith in Christ and what he did for me on the cross, and though I didn't get the details 
right, I still don't think I would have gone to hell. And this is what I would say. I'm really glad we don't have to be, have all the details right. I always say I disagree with my younger self, and someday I'm going to disagree with this version of myself, so I know I'm probably wrong, and I was probably wrong before, or maybe I was right then and I'm wrong now. And I'm glad I don't have to get all the T's perfectly crossed and the I's perfectly dotted in order to say I can have a relationship with Christ. We can have a relationship with Christ even without knowing we have perfect theology. I suppose if you get it wrong enough, it would affect that. But let me emphasize to you, what does Christ want from us? Relationship with him. He sent his son to die for us. If we put our faith and trust in him that he died for us on the cross, we can have that relationship with him. And he did rise from the grave, didn't he? Amen? That's why we're going to finish with he arose. We take comfort in the fact not only did he die for us, he defeated death, and ultimately we look forward to him defeating death ultimately. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much that you came and died, you defeated death. That defeating the death is part of the path that you paved for us to be able to spend eternity with you. We love you. We thank you for that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.